Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. I am not in the business of judging ideas. I am in the business of choosing entrepreneurs that I feel are going to take action. Welcome back to episode 42 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode was made possible by our friends at Pledge. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Shannon Lore. Shannon is the founder and CEO of Factory 45, where she works with idea stage entrepreneurs to launch fashion brands that are sustainably and ethically made. Shannon got her start in 2010 when she co-founded Revolution Apparel, a sustainable clothing company for female travelers and minimalists. Through her online business school, Factory 45, Shannon has worked with over 500 entrepreneurs in the sustainable fashion space, many of whom have gone on to launch some of the most transparent supply chains in the fashion industry. Shannon has also worked as a consultant for crowdfunding projects that have surpassed their goal amounts as much as 300%. She has pragmatic advice to offer, as well as tips for keeping your mindset right and analysis paralysis out of the equation, as well as nitty gritty advice about how to get a product and brand off the ground. We also get into the nuances of partnering between nonprofits and for-profits that want to dedicate some portion of their proceeds to support causes they care about. To wrap things up, Shannon and I share thoughts on the importance of knowing your own value. Whether it's a good or service you're offering, you are bringing something to the table, period. Knowing that deeply and backing it up with confidence can take time, but that's okay. That's why conversations like this are helpful. There is so much in this episode, so let's dive in and meet Shannon. Welcome, everyone. I am so thrilled to be here today with Shannon Lore. Shannon, I'd really just like to start with you giving a little intro to yourself and to your work, and then we're going to dive right in because I know there is so much for us to talk about today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mallory. So I am the founder and CEO of Factory 45, the online business school that takes sustainable fashion brands from idea to launch. I started the program back in 2014, and I've worked with entrepreneurs all over the globe to launch sustainable and ethical fashion brands. That is so amazing. And I'm curious, like, I want to hear a little bit more about your story around why this is particularly important to you and the focus of your life's work right now. It's really funny that it is my life's work, like 10 years. I started my own sustainable fashion brand back in 2010. At the time, you did not even put the word sustainable and fashion together. Like no one knew what that meant. And I really didn't know what it meant. I had set out to start a business with my then co-founder, 
We weren't really sure what it looked like. We did not have any interest in sustainability. We were not fashion majors or fashion designers. We really just saw a need in the market for something that we ourselves wanted, which was a versatile travel garment that you could just throw in a backpack. We were both backpackers. I had bartended my way around the world for two years. Like we were just kind of two college grads who wanted to keep traveling. Fast forward, we ended up launching the highest funded fashion project in Kickstarter history at the time. We were featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. It was like this whole whirlwind experience. But what I realized from that was that it should be easier for people to start fashion brands that are sustainably and ethically made from the beginning. And that's sort of what led me to launch Factory 45 to help other entrepreneurs start businesses with entrepreneurship, social impact, focus, and do it the right way from the start. Amazing. I love that. I'd love to hear a little bit about why is it so hard to sort of create a brand or a product that's rooted in sustainable and ethical practices? Like, why is that so hard for someone to break into? I think that for the most part, and this has changed since I set out to do this, there are a lot of just closed doors in the manufacturing industry, especially when it comes to fashion. Everyone's so secretive and competitive. And then you add in the sustainability aspect, you're always going to pay more for sustainable fabrics. If you are looking at ethical manufacturing, you're going to pay more because those workers, the sewers are actually being paid a fair and living wage. It's a very nuanced and complicated conversation. Thankfully, since I set out to do this, you know, a decade ago, we've come a long way. And thanks to different resources and different manufacturers prioritizing ethical manufacturing, as well as fabric suppliers prioritizing more sustainable fabrics. And then the innovation has just made progress. You're leading me to this other question, which is, In the marketplace, if you're not going to be providing something that is the race to the bottom from a cost perspective, and I'm sure at the time that you were sort of building reputation around sustainable and ethical clothing, there were probably questions about quality and durability and and all of those pieces. So my guess would be that really building the brand and the community and the reason why consumers want to be wearing a certain fashion and what that means about how they identify themselves. I can imagine that's a big part of what you did and then what you're teaching other entrepreneurs to do as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the conversation and messaging is huge because again, 2010, we're talking like no one knew what sustainable fashion was. Okay, well, how do you educate the consumer to at least start to grasp? Yes, it's complicated, but start to understand, okay, this is what I'm looking for. This is how I can ask a brand these questions. So much of the evolution of the consumer, at least to the point where we have a small group of people who understand sustainable fashion and want it, like seek it out. I mean, there's a community that only buys sustainable fashion. That has come from these smaller brands constantly messaging on Instagram, their email list, writing blog posts, doing podcast interviews, YouTube videos, like all of that content marketing that helps not only themselves, of course, their products, but also 
communicate why it's important. And so that education has been absolutely critical. And that's why when people ask me, do we really need another sustainable fashion brand or like a fashion brand? Do we need another fashion startup? I'm like, what's the alternative? Because it's thanks to those brands that people even are starting to think about making more conscious shopping decisions. Gosh, I love that because I actually feel like there's so many pieces that you're talking about that are so relevant to fundraisers as they think about their nonprofit. And this piece around creating problem aware audiences, right? That if you are breaking into a market and the nonprofit market, you may be sharing a message or sharing a certain amount of education that's meeting people at all different awareness levels. You're the clients of these brands. There are folks who might read that content and be ready to purchase, but other people are going to be digesting that content maybe for a year. And it's just going to be starting to turn the knob in their head around, this is a thing. I could be more conscientious when I'm buying my clothing. I know you do a lot inside your work around supporting these entrepreneurs to build this brand and and build this content piece. How do you support them to meet a variety of people where they're at? It's complicated. I think one thing is identifying their target customer niche, which we focus on a lot. Who is your ideal target customer? And not trying to appeal to everyone, because if you try to appeal to everyone, you'll appeal to no one. So identifying who you're talking to and then figuring out what level you need to meet them at. And of course, there will be varying degrees. It could be as simple as one Instagram grid post that's super simple and straightforward. And then you can dive deeper through an Instagram live or an Instagram story. So much of what I do and I teach my brands is the marketing piece, of course, because we are selling a physical product. But through that, I also say sustainability can never be your number one marketing method. It can't be the first thing. It can't be the first reason someone buys from you, but there are ways, there are little touch points that you can incorporate through all of your other marketing that communicates that message. And like you said, these little touch points that happen, maybe it's over a year, but eventually it kind of gets through. I love that. And I'm curious, before we sort of clicked record, you had said this thing that I thought was really interesting around how many people come into your network and are also wondering about partnering with nonprofits. And it's striking me a little bit because I think about these entrepreneurs who are working with you to create sustainable and ethical fashion options from the beginning. So they already have this social conscious mindset. And perhaps some people would believe that means they're more likely to want to partner with nonprofits, but it could also mean, in my opinion, that they are less likely because they feel like that's the core of their business model. So talk to me a little bit about how your folks think about cross-sector partnerships. What have you seen go really well in that space? What has just been a dumpster fire? Like just tell us all the things. In a general sense, yes, you're right. I would say there's two camps. One is I want to partner with a nonprofit from the beginning, like a lot come in, they're only at idea stage and they already know the nonprofit that they want to partner with and give, and a lot of it is like, give a percentage of proceeds. What I say is, okay, that's great, but we need to make sure you have a margin. You have, you have costs, you have your cost of goods sold, and then you have your retail price. 
somewhere in that margin, you need to be able to sustain your business. You need to be able to grow your business. And then let's talk about donating a percentage of whatever's left over to a nonprofit. But if that means dipping too far into your margin, that your business is going to go under after a year or two, then that's not serving anyone. That doesn't serve the nonprofit, first of all, because what they got like a few hundred bucks in your first year and then the partnership's over. And it doesn't serve you because you don't have a business anymore. That's a really, really important part of it. And I think that you can like offset your carbon footprint. You can incorporate like all these different things. Now you can donate a percentage of proceeds. My emphasis is on making sure it's a healthy business first. And then to your point, some of the brands are like, all right, well, I'm incorporating this sustainable packaging and this sustainable fabric and my workers are already paid, you know, $2 more than the average sewer. So like that part of it, or they're working with a factory that's a cooperative and all the workers get a revenue share. So there's that element. I think it can come from a few different angles. I love that. And I'm curious, I want to dig a little bit deeper around this margin question, because one of the things that I've been really exploring with corporate partnerships in particular is there is, and particularly around some of the types of corporate engagements we're talking about where there's like a give back model or percentage of sales and things like that. I've seen great success with checkout plugins with Shopify and things like that. And we have an awesome partner who supports a lot of our nonprofits that I'm curious, how could a nonprofit help with that margin by creating a really intentional strategic partnership from the beginning where some of the other costs associated with business like marketing or audience acquisition or all of these different things where the nonprofit supports the business in certain ways so that it's less about, okay, when you're, when you have, when you have this margin, that's the time to incorporate a nonprofit as opposed to how can we partner in a way where we're utilizing folks who believe the same things as us, who overlap in audience with us and really build that into sort of strategic marketing. What do you think about that? I think that is what you said. It's the marketing and customer acquisition. That's where they can help because until you can, I mean, there's an economy of scale in manufacturing too, where the higher your volume is, the your price, your COGS, your cost of goods sold comes down. And so if we can get more customers and up that sales volume and thus the manufacturing volume, then that would help create a better margin for the product and for the brand. So I think that the exposure and the marketing piece, customer acquisition piece is, is probably what would be most helpful. Do you feel like if you've had any experiences like that and whether they've been at the beginning or at a midpoint, once that margin is defined, do you feel like there are some practices that you've seen nonprofits utilize that have been really beneficial in building this mutually beneficial partnership and some things you've seen happen that have perhaps damaged relationships in some way or made it so that they are these kind of one-time things, but don't feel good in terms of being incorporated into the long-term strategy of the company? I don't know if I have like enough anecdotal data for that. I mean, I will say the bigger the nonprofit's platform is, obviously that is a huge, if they have, you know, a multi, multi multi-thousand 
person email list or a very large Instagram following, or they do have a YouTube channel. I do think when a nonprofit can think in a business-minded way in terms of marketing, whether that is starting your own YouTube channel or your own podcast and figuring out how to build your platform, then it just in general is going to be a better experience for any partner, whether that is a for-profit or nonprofit partner. We do something called asset mapping inside my course. And that is definitely one of the types of assets that we talk about. I think particularly we're talking about the education piece where so much of the burden has fallen on companies to both be using their content strategy from a marketing perspective and sales perspective, but also the education around the problem in the first place. And to me, that seems, and I'm sure this depends on the size of the company and all these other pieces, but to me, that seems also such an easy place for nonprofits to support because they're often incredibly familiar with the problem and messaging the problem and bringing in new folks to care about the problem. So it does feel like there might be like a natural opportunity there. Yeah. And even when the nonprofit is like constantly messaging that problem and then can say, and here's a solution or here are some solutions and they happen to be one of our partners or whatever it is. I think that's always a a great thing. I'm curious about the journey that these entrepreneurs go on inside your program. And I know that you shared about your experience on Kickstarter and there are certain types of startup financing support that you provide inside your program. I'm really curious about the emotional components around sales. What happens when some of the folks inside your course go from this idea, this vision, especially perhaps those really rooted in the impact, the sustainable and ethical practices, how they feel, frankly, translating that mission and that goal into selling a product. Do you see resistance there? Talk to me about that funny you asked this because I did a live show and interviewed someone about this very thing. And we were talking about this in terms of just the tension between I need to sell because that's what makes it a business and not a hobby, but also the consumer culture not feeding into that consumer feeding frenzy. And I think what we came up with, it's kind of like back to what I said at the beginning is We need the brands, the for-profits, the businesses, the people selling who care about other things, have the social impact element or care about donating a portion to a nonprofit, whatever it is. Really, it's coming to terms with the fact that you are providing a solution to a problem. That's what I always say to my entrepreneurs. We're not creating another t-shirt brand. We're not creating another green printed t-shirt We're creating products that solve problems for our customers. And that's one of the first things we do is we identify the ideal target customer, that niche, that person who we're solving the problem for, and then the solution to the problem that we've identified. So it's really a separation from this idea of trends and fast fashion and just buy it because it's $5 and it's going to make you feel good for one night and then you're going to throw it into your closet. Looking at it from a tech perspective. You have all these like tech companies, right? Where it's like, okay, identify the problem first and then create the solution around that problem. That's kind of what we're trying to reinvent with the sustainable fashion industry. Wow. Okay. I love that. And I want to ask you a little bit of a loaded question, but I'm just going to say that I 
I'm not saying this from a place of my beliefs, but I'm just curious if your folks or you get this pushback and then we can talk a little bit because I think there's some overlap here with fundraisers. But I'm curious, do you get folks who come and say, well, really from a sustainability perspective, what we need is less objects being created? And how do you and the folks that you work with manage that feedback when it comes in? Yeah, of course, we get this question and this uh, feedback for sure. And I equate it to climate change. The government tells us, okay, we, well, we have to have shorter showers. You have to limit your own water use. When really it's the multi-billion dollar corporations, the animal agriculture, the oil, like all of that stuff is far worse. Curbing that would do far more for the planet than us shortening our showers, right? And so I look at that with sustainable fashion brands too. It's fast fashion, it's Amazon, it's Walmart, it's that turn of H&Ms of the world, the Forever 21s of the world saying, bye, 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 sale, 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 $5, $5, $5. That is what is going to have a bigger impact than saying, oh, okay, well, we don't need another sustainable fashion brand, so let's just get rid of all the fashion startups. That's what I thought you were going to say. And I really appreciate you saying it because I think this is something that happens a lot. There are these feelings about sales and fundraising and money just in general. And particularly, I think for women who have been told for generations that talking about money is inappropriate. And then they finally have the courage to talk about money and perhaps to sell something that's super meaningful to them or to fundraise for a cause that's super meaningful to them. And then they hear some naysayer messages. It can really shake you to your core. I'm sure you've had those days. I've had those days. One, just important to kind of normalize that for people who are just starting out, that these are loaded activities and words. And they're oftentimes very emotional, especially if you've been staying up till 2 a.m. trying to build your business. And then you get one of those comments, we've been there and it's okay. And I'm just curious if you have anything to add to that. And then I want to connect what you said in response to something I think is really relevant to fundraisers too. I think that it's about the value you're bringing. It's about the value, not just in the product or the foundation or the fundraiser. It's about if you're employing people, I get pushback about this, about the cost of tuition for my program. I'm like, sorry, I'm not going to apologize for it because I know the value. I know it brings exponentially more value than what it costs. And I have a team of people to support, families to help support, to make sure that they stay employed. There's such a bigger picture to the whole money conversation that it's not just about raising $10 or selling this garment for $90 or whatever it is. You have to look at the value from a higher level than just what you're seeing on a computer screen or in a retail store. I love what you're talking about right now. And I want to go deeper here on this because I'm curious how you think about this. I feel like I fall into sometimes this difficult space around this piece of the conversation where I don't want to over justify prices around something because I just want to be able to say that's the price and do what you're doing, which is to say, 
and I'm paying all of these people. And I feel like as women too, we have this constant pull. I just want to sit in my self-worth, but I also want to explain to you why I'm worth it. And I'm curious what that's been like for you as an entrepreneur and as a mom, even. I mean, I know I think about my daughter so much sometimes when I'm navigating that space. What would I want her to think or say right now? Or how would I want her to sit embodied in her value? And I know you're also coaching and supporting all these other people to do this, but I'm just curious your own experience with it. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I've come a long way. I certainly didn't start out with this confidence of this mentality. And I think it comes with experience. Should I be charging what I'm charging back in 2014 when I was just starting out? No, probably not. As you build your experience, And as you bring on team members with experience, you have a whole group of alumni mentors who have already launched their brands. They're offering one-on-one mentorship to people who want to do what they're doing. That's a whole other value set that you really can't put a price tag on. So I think as you start to get more self-assured in, again, the value you're providing and you start to hear feedback, this was worth more than my MBA. This is the most value I've ever received, which we hear all the time then it builds up that confidence for you. I hate to say it, but for someone just starting out, it's going to be harder for you. And that's okay. Just expect that. And then as you gain experience and as you grow into your role, you're going to accumulate this feeling of, yeah, I'm worth what I charge. And I think that just applies to fundraising in so many different ways. I mean, one, just around the practice, it's a little bit different in terms of your hourly rate isn't necessarily going up, but just in that practice of saying big numbers. Or I remember when I was the managing director of an organization, we made a silly mistake and it cost us a thousand dollars. And the executive director was just losing his marbles about it. And I was like, okay. I get it. But you know what? It's really good that we made this mistake right now. And it was a thousand dollars because actually if we had made this mistake, when we grow, it could have been a $10,000 mistake or a hundred thousand dollar mistake. And so this was actually a great investment of us learning this lesson. And I think as nonprofits are starting to raise more money, you're going to start to say bigger and bigger numbers. You know, you're not a tiny little hundred thousand dollar nonprofit is not going to go in and ask for $5 million probably tomorrow, but you're going to say the number that feels like it's pushing the boundary for you. And that number is going to continue to grow. And then just like with sales, you're going to say the number you're going to stop talking and you're going to let the other person make a decision and know how uncomfortable those moments can be, right? Of wanting to be like, because for that thousand dollars, we're going to do blah, 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 blah. And we work with fundraisers so much around saying, would you be interested in investing a thousand dollars in that and stopping and just sitting with it and recognizing that the answer might be yes, the answer might be no. But I also think your point 
that's so well taken. And this is why meetings with donors are so critical fundraisers is because to start to get some of that positive feedback around the investment in your organization was one of the most meaningful investments I've ever made. Going to see the program in action was one of the most life-changing experiences I've ever had. Those data points, those anecdotes, those stories, that really does help build your confidence the next time then you're inviting someone new to invest in that way. So I love that you shared all of that. Yeah. And I just want to echo your point, which is a thousand dollars to one person is different than a thousand dollars to another person. And so also like remembering that you can't predict the answer or the outcome. Just like you said, you have to stop and just be like, this is what I charge, or this is what we're asking for and just let it be and be okay with it. Yeah. And I think creating space for people to talk about sales is not bad. Sure. Doing sales in a particular way might be really cringy. Doing fundraising in a particular way can be really cringy, but doing fundraising from a place of alignment and values is not cringy. And same with sales. I even had an experience I've shared a little bit recently where my birthday for my course, I actually offered a scholarship that was related to how old I was turning and actually made it so that I was breaking even pretty much on the course. And I got an email back, but I really wanted to do it as just this birthday thing. I don't know for myself. And I got an email back from somebody that says, this is just another slimy sales tactic. And I ended up writing this guy a pretty long email. And I just said, look, first of all, actually at this scholarship level, I'm not making any money on this. But I didn't put that in my first email because I don't believe that selling something is bad just because I don't believe that fundraising is bad. I believe my course provides a solution to a problem and I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud that people invest money in themselves and in their organizations because that buy-in starts to move money for them. And so I just think there's just this much bigger conversation as you're talking about that I just really want to echo, which is we need to be able to zoom out, be real with ourselves around our own money beliefs, not project that onto tons of other people and to recognize that sometimes money needs to move in alignment with our values, even when it is maybe selling something we don't feel like we personally need because it's solving a bigger problem that we might not even be able to see. What are some of the pieces of advice that you give new entrepreneurs and that I'm sure would also just be so relevant to folks? There's so many similarities between starting a business and starting a nonprofit or being in startup phase in business, startup phase and nonprofit. What's some of the baseline advice you give folks? It's just about putting one foot in front of the other. All the time I'll get questions like, what's your favorite idea? Which entrepreneur in your program has the best idea this year? What are some of the projects that are like really cool that people are working on? If I judge the ideas, I wouldn't have predicted Crocs would be a billion dollar business. I am not in the business of judging ideas. I am in the business of choosing entrepreneurs that I feel are going to take action because the single most important quality of an entrepreneur, of a fundraiser, of whoever is the ability to take action. So often we talk ourselves into these procrastination spirals 
that we think we need everything to be perfect on these nitty gritty little things that are not going to move the needle in any way. And it's really the people who see the bigger picture and are able to map that out. And of course, I help them map that out, but can take the next step. And I think that applies literally to probably anything in life. I'm so glad you said that. I totally agree. I read something the other day that said procrastination is not a time management issue. It's an emotional management issue. And it's just so much the chatter that we hear. And we do a lot of work on this podcast talking about what are the narratives we're telling ourselves? How are they holding us back? How are they getting in the way of taking action? But I'm really curious. I kind of want to double click on what you just said around the perfectionist piece and some of the little details that people hyper analyze or what are some of the things that come up in your world that people just really, really focus on? You're like, that's not the point at all. The logo. Oh God. (laughs) Pick a font and that's your logo. Of course, it's a little bit different with fashion. Branding is a huge piece and I'm not trying to undermine that. When you're first starting out, it's just so much more important to start building your audience and just have something up online so you can start collecting email addresses, start building a social media following and the logo, font scheme, color scheme. Those are all things that people just love to get really nitty gritty with. And it holds you back because you think it's the illusion of productivity if you spend three hours on Canva, but it's not, it's not actual productivity. Fundraisers, I hope you heard that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what you're saying is obviously something that we deal with so, so, so much in this sector too. And I mean, I'm curious what you think about that when you were sharing that with me, I'm like, well, is the focus on brand and font, that hyper focus, is it really just folks avoiding visibility? Yeah, I I get it. Like it is scary. We worry so much. It's not even the trolls of social media, which is obviously scary, the comments and all that, but it's our friends and family. And, oh, I just graduated with my master's. People are going to wonder why I'm like now starting a business. We create these stories in our heads that fine, maybe your great aunt Mildred would feel this way, but no one else does. We pick out these stories that most people are probably not thinking about or everyone does it. And I can still do this at times being in this game for 10 years there's still times that it's like the monkey mind. Totally. How did you navigate that early on? Because I feel that I experienced that a lot too. I can tell in my body and my mind when I'm hitting a new level of visibility because all the chatter gets real loud. I maybe can address my imposter syndrome where I currently sit, but then I always know when I'm up leveling because it all comes flooding back. And I have my set of tools that I've talked about a lot on here, but what are some of the things you do when you get those sensations or those narratives in order to keep going? I keep a Google doc of testimonials from past students. They're just like rave reviews, people that, you know, will say this program changed my life. I'll open that and I'll read through all the positive stuff. I will say in terms of visibility, really the thing that helped me was hiring someone to manage all the content, all the social media. So I'm just not on it. Just not looking at every single Instagram DM. I'm not looking at every single Instagram comment or YouTube comment. There's a bit of a filter now, and that's only recent within the last year. That's been pretty life-changing. That's awesome. I have a few things in my business 
that now no longer come to me just to allow me to read those things when I'm in the right headspace to read them and enter into that from a place of choice and not just feeling like it's hitting me throughout the day, all day, every day. Yeah, I'm talking about this and I'm like, I can't even think of one negative thing. I mean, knock on wood, of course, tomorrow I'll I'll get a negative comment, but it's not like this happens a lot, but I think it's just the separation of self, which is something that I have had to really process and overcome this past year is I am not my business. I run my business or I am not my nonprofit. I run the nonprofit or I am not the funds that I raise. I am just running that separation from whether it is, whether it is your business or whether it is a job or task you're doing, like that is not your identity. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I mean, I can imagine that now probably your business and your work has a bigger following than 10 years ago. I mean, I ran an environmental literacy organization 10 years ago. I mean, holy moly, we try to talk about some of these topics and it was like doors, 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 doors. And I feel like you probably did historically deal with a lot more rejection or lack of interest and found ways to move through that. And I think for change makers in general, something I say to nonprofit folks all the time is, look, your work is inherently challenging. You are challenging the status quo. That is the whole purpose, right? Of this sector is to be righting wrongs existing around us. There's no way everyone's going to be on board for that because there are certain people benefiting from the status quo that you're trying to disrupt, that I'm trying to disrupt. And that's just, for me, a big part of grounding in my why. I remember the first time on this podcast, I got a three star or something and someone sent it to me appalled. And I was like, yes, finally, that to me is a good sign. I am pushing the envelope. That is why I'm here. I'm not here just to make everyone happy. There's enough of that if I wanted to just play into that status quo. So I really appreciate you sharing just some of the ways that you navigate that as you've been growing. I want to ask you before we head off, I know you're also a mom and probably balancing so many things behind the scenes that a lot of the people who are listening to this can relate to. And I'm just curious how that has played into your journey and how you think about that in relation to where you're going and the folks you support. I know you support a lot of women who are probably in similar life stages too. So we just talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, motherhood is obviously so challenging and being an entrepreneur and being a mom is challenging. I will say in terms of time management, it is the best thing that's ever happened because my son is at school from 8.30 to 2.30. That's the time I get. Everything I need to get done happens within that time. And then the computer goes away, the phone goes away, and I'm with him until he goes to bed at seven. I think that whereas before I became a mom, there was this tendency to drag things out or reopen the computer at night. And of course, depending on what stage of entrepreneurship you're in, you may still have to do that. If you're in startup mode, or I keep saying entrepreneur, but this relates to fundraisers too, then it's going to be varying degrees of this. But I do think that time management piece and having that container has been really helpful. I think it's one of those things where you just let 
things slide a little bit easier when challenges come up or the negative stuff, the self-doubt, you don't have as much time to dwell in it. You don't have as much time to just dwell in your shit because you have to just move on and compartmentalize that and then move on to something else. Yeah, the whole perspective I think really changes when you become a mom and just things that used to bother you wouldn't bother you anymore. Do you deal with a lot of folks trying to get their businesses off the ground or to a certain place before they enter motherhood? Do you see that a lot? I get a lot of people who are pregnant or in their maternity leave. I'm like, you guys are the achievers. Enneagram threes for sure. Oh my gosh. I was like, all right, maternity leave, three months, setting it up. The moms are the best to work with the moms. They're just efficient. They're action takers. And some have kids starting kindergarten. And so now they have all this free time or it's always fun to work with them. I love that. I mean, it's been something I've been thinking about in my own career progression or business progression. And my daughter's two and a half. And of course, everyone's asking about where the next one is. And I'm just like, well, I had it and it's called Power Partners and it's a course. The funny thing to navigate all the moving pieces, but I totally agree with you. I think it has also given me space and distance around what really matters and doesn't allow me to obsess about the small stuff and ground in my why really related to her. Um, Although I'll tell you, I'm very nervous for losing daycare that's all year round. I literally just said to my husband, I said, so what do we do during the summer? Or what do we do when she's in public school and it ends at two or three? I think women and moms are navigating and parents in so many different ways. And it's awesome to have spaces and communities like yours. I know that's a big thing that you offer your folks are these community components. So I don't know if you want to say anything about that and then just tell folks where they can find you, how they can learn more for those who are interested. If you want to share about some of the community as a part of that, that would be great too. Of course, a community when you're starting anything new or you're not in that world from your day job or whatever it is. I think just the camaraderie and constant echoes of, yes, I'm going through that too, or, oh yeah, that's normal. That happened to me or whatever it is, the support and then the accountability piece too, to see, oh, that person completed that milestone in getting closer to X outcome. All of that I think is so important. They say 60% of online courses are never even opened. And so making sure that if you are going to enroll, that you're enrolling in something like a program, it's more than just a self-study course so that you have that community accountability. And of course, with Factory 45, we have the alumni mentorship piece and the mentorship from me. Anyone who is interested in starting a sustainable fashion or accessories brand can learn more about Factory 45 at factory45.co. Awesome. And then I invite everyone to share a nonprofit that's near and dear to their heart as well. Do you have one in mind you'd like to have folks check out? Oh, man. Yeah. Together Rising is the one that I donate to every month, which I'm sure everyone probably knows. Well, we'll send information about Together Rising below is the one started by Glennon Doyle and does a lot of urgent relief work and a variety of different community-centric approaches to funding initiatives that aren't always getting the attention of other organizations or is there anything else about them you'd love to share? I just like that the people who run the organization are funded separately. Their salaries are paid separately so that 
all your donation is going towards the actual cause or the people who need it. That's probably something you get a lot of pushback on in the nonprofit world is the red tape and all of the registration fees and things that have to get paid for too. And where does your money actually go? I think it's a great organization. I've actually wanted to have them come on to talk about this component because I think the 100% model is wildly successful on an organization by organization basis, but can be really hard on a sector wide basis. So I think it is about the growing consciousness around why are we asking those questions and what does it mean? And it probably relates in so many ways to your work, right? As the businesses are starting to separate out, okay, this is how much are going to these workers. At the end of the day, it's all coming together to create the product that has been defined as being the most important product to solve a specific problem. That's the way I want people to think about the nonprofit sector too, which is it doesn't really matter how much is going to the staff or going to this. If the product, the program is moving the needle the way that it's intended, that's the point. These are growing conversations inside and around the sector. So I'm actually really glad that you brought it up because I think it's an awesome thing for us to constantly be talking about. Cool. Well, I'll keep an eye out for that episode. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and having this conversation with me today and for all of the incredible work that you do. So grateful to get to know you and have this conversation. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. There are a lot of takeaways from this episode that I want to double click on. The first one is whether you're in the nonprofit or for-profit world, a good rule of thumb is identify your target audience, cultivate that niche, and don't try to be all things to all people. I also love Shannon's number one tip for any startup. It's all about moving forward. Don't let yourself get bogged down in procrastination or minutia. Good enough is far better than never enough when it comes to getting your business or nonprofit up and running or really at any time in your development. Action is always the antidote to fear. I really love the tip that Shannon shares that's basically an imposter syndrome cheat sheet. This involves pulling together a document with affirmations of your achievements, testimonials, or any other data points to remind you that you are truly accomplished and worthy. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, remember Shannon's mantra, you are not what you do, and what you do is not who you are. All right, there is so much goodness in this episode, so head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to get access to all of the show notes right now. You'll also find more information there about Shannon and Factory 45 and how to connect with her. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.